Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. This morning, I'm going to start with a story that I have never shared publicly. And I want to make clear, this is my best story. They are all downhill from here. This is the best that I have. (laughs) Mentally prepare yourself. I have saved it. Um, really for, I guess it happened all over 10 years ago, but we started the church six and a half years ago. So I've essentially saved it for six and a half years for this moment right now. So consider yourself very privileged to be about to hear it. This is the true story of the time when I assaulted an NFL Hall of Fame football player. <laughs> now I'm not going to use his name because this is being broadcast and recorded. He'll actually be on TV later today. Um, and so he probably wouldn't see this, but you know, I didn't sign anything, so it's fine, I guess. I'll tell you afterward though, if you want to know. Today, I'm going to call him John. That is not his name. And about 10 years ago, I was on staff at a very large church in the Dallas area, very large, meaning like 45,000 members. Um, and I was the, uh, senior pastor's intern. So I was his like kind of direct person. Um, it, uh, if that sounds glamorous, it was not. Um, <laughs> I did a lot of picking up dry cleaning, a lot of uh, reformatting Word documents. Um, he was not great with computers, <laughs> so I had to do a lot of those types of things. Um, and it was some like really incredible times, but also some really difficult times. A lot like I imagined, I was not in a fraternity, but a lot like I imagined being in a fraternity those first couple of years probably is like. Um, But one thing that was cool about being on staff at a church this large, like we had a a full restaurant, uh, Starbucks inside of it, multiple bookstores, all inside of the church. Um, But we also had a gym, um, like a a full workout facility, and then a three-court basketball gym, like a massive basketball gym. And so every day about 4.30, there are about 30 of us interns across uh, multiple campuses. And every uh, day at about 4.30, we would go down to the gyms and we would play pickup basketball. We'd play for a couple hours, get some workout in, and and then go home. And um, because of the kind of prominence of this place in DFW, um, we, we had a lot of like professional athletes come in and out. So Dallas Cowboys, um, Dallas Stars, uh, Mavericks, even Texas Rangers. I've played pickup basketball against some um, like really incredible dudes, and uh, it was really, really fun. But there was one guy, John, not his name, um, who was there every day. And that's because John's kids went to the school attached to the church, right? So there was this kind of prep school, this Christian prep school attached um, that was really, really good at sports. So they had a lot of kind of athletes come out of the public school system and go into there. So um, his kids went to the school. And so he was there like literally almost every day we would play pickup basketball together. And so we were not like good friends, but we were on a first name basis, right? So that day I walk in, I said, hey, John, what's up? It's like, hey, Zach, good to see you, man. And so what we would do is we would play full court basketball on the center court, right? And then if you lost, you had to go to the side court. You could shoot around, maybe play a little pickup on the side court, kind of wait for your turn to get back on the big court, right? So I was playing with four other interns on our team and uh, we lost. Wasn't my fault. It was somebody else's fault, but that's not part of the story. <laughs> anyway, so we lose and we, we go to the side court and um, John is over there uh, with uh, two of his kids and two of his kids' friends. 
And so there's five of them, five of us. So I said, hey, John, you want to play a little pickup, you know, on the side court? He's like, oh, that sounds great, right? Sounds great. So we start playing this pickup game. And um, honestly, from jump, it was like a little chippy, right? So at first it started out like a little mouthy. Then it started out to get a little physically chippy, right? Kind of some shoves, some talking, all of that kind of stuff. Um, John is is famous, actually, for being kind of a a chippy player um, and uh, talking a lot during his career. And so anyway, that was on full display in this pickup basketball game. Um, I was not guarding John. I was guarding John's oldest son. That's going to be important in just a second. AJ, my other friend, was guarding John. And so we are playing to like 21 or something. Like we jump ahead. It's game point, like one more bucket and we win, right? And so they have the ball. They're coming down the floor. And John does not like to lose, right? And so John is, comes into the post and he's calling for the basketball, right? And I am guarding his son kind of at the top of the key. And uh, his son's about to try to, you know, throw it down into John. And, um, but AJ is what's called fronting John which is where instead of being behind John, kind of waiting for the ball to come in and then trying to block, he's actually in front of John trying to keep the pass from coming in, right? And AJ's a big dude. John's a very big dude, but AJ's a big dude too. And so he is being pretty effective in trying to keep the ball from coming in. So effective that John gets frustrated and John kind of grabs AJ around the neck like this and throws him to the ground, then catches the entry pass, dunks it, and starts to jog back down the floor like nothing happened. Now, (laughs) this is where it gets interesting. Um, I am the closest person to John as he jogs back down the floor. And and so I didn't really think a lot about it. I just kind of stepped in front of him and I kind of put my hands on his shoulder and I was like, hey, John, like, come on, man, we can't play like that. And um, John did not like that I put my hands on him. Um, And so John gives me a pretty big shove. Now, again, John's a big guy, but I'm a pretty big guy, right? And, uh, you know, I didn't go to the ground. Uh, I went back a couple of feet. (laughs) I didn't go to the ground. And... um, See how to put this. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I kind of forgot who I was <laughs> in the moment. And uh, I was shoved, and it didn't matter that it was John who had shoved me, or that I worked at the church where we were playing at, or that I was the head pastor's intern. Any, all of that went out the window the moment I was shoved. And I went back, and I shoved John, and I said, if you would like to do this, we can do this, right? <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so John comes back at me and, um, thankfully only like one second, we get separated, no punches are thrown, nothing like that. A couple of mild shoves. I, uh, quickly remember who I am at that point, snap back in and think, oh my gosh, I just like, I'm going to get fired. Like I just, you know, flushed my whole career down the toilet. Like it's just like, you know, it was, I was so terrified, right? We get separated. Um, uh, John does not kind of click back in. He is still very, very upset. So I actually go to the far other corner of the court. So we're on like this side, remember the big game in the middle court, and then the other side court. So I go to this corner, he's in this corner. So we're like as far away as you can possibly be. I let five, 10 minutes go by, and I'm still feeling bad, and I'm also worried about my career here. And so I walk over to him, and I say, hey, John, I just want to say I'm sorry. Like, I, sh- I shouldn't have put my hands on you, um, you know, when you're running back down the floor, whatever. Um, and, and I'd had time to cool off, you know, and, and was apologetic. Um, John had not had time, enough time to cool off, and uh, he was still very upset. Um, and so shoves me again, kind of starts putting his finger, like, in my cheek, if you've ever seen that. And he's, like, yelling at me and pushing my face with his finger and the whole thing. So we get separated again. I go back to the other side of the floor. I think I did my job, right? I apologize. I tried. It's going to be fine. Five minutes later, 10 Plano police officers, well, oh, shouldn't have said the city, but all right, it's on them. 10 (laughs) police officers from an indeterminate DFW city walk into the gym 
And um, I'm like, oh no, oh my gosh, somebody called the police. Uh, you know, this is gonna be terrible. So I walk up to the first officer and I'm like, ma'am, th- this, this was not a big deal. Like, I, I don't, I don't wanna press any charges. Like, th- this is not a huge thing. And she's like, oh no, are you uh, Zach? And I was like, yes. It's not a good uh, thing when the police officer knows your name before you <laughs> approach them. And so I said, yes. And she said, oh no, uh, Mr. John's last name is pressing charges against you. That was my response. Thank you. What? Um, And so for the next like three hours, everybody in the gym has to go into these individual offices. We have to give reports to the police. It's a whole thing. It turns into an investigation. I was teaching a Sunday school class at the time at the church. um, And uh, one of the members of the Sunday school class, her father actually was the officer assigned to my case. Um, So he called me the next day. Anyway, Long story short, um, thankfully, they actually had video of the whole thing, um, and so uh, they got a hold of the video. The police were like, this is a non-incident thing, and in fact, like, if there was somebody at fault, it really wasn't Zach, and so they go, you know, through the whole thing, and, and so, um, yeah, the, the pastor of the church actually um, kind of had my back and told John, um, you actually cannot come back to uh, the church or the school or any kind of events like that until you apologize to Zach, and so um, <laughs> we... Uh, yeah, we um, go a couple of weeks later to the pastor's office. We sit in this little conference room around this table. It's me and John and the pastor and the executive pastor, four of us around this little table. And um, we all have to hug first, so we all hug each other. And then, um, and then we have to hold hands and we have to pray. We all have to take turns praying. And, um, and then at the end of the prayer, there was supposed to be this apology and we were supposed to be like good from there. And I still remember it so vividly. We are holding hands and um, I pray and the pastor prays and it's John's turn to pray and John prays, God, you say in your word that Christians are never supposed to sue other Christians. So I pray, God, that all of us at this table remember not to sue other Christians. In, in your son's name, I pray, amen. And, um, and so afterwards, uh, he, you know, offers me the apology and a piece of paper uh, saying that I would not sue him. Um, and I said, absolutely, John, got no desire to sue you, man. Totally fine. He's like, look, between me and you, uh, these altercations happen fairly frequently. And I was like, really? <laughs> I'm shocked that that's true. Um, and he says, so my lawyer told me, like, I get sued a lot civilly when they happen. So my lawyer told me if this happens, what, well, when this happens again, um, that you need to be the one that calls the police first. You need to file the report because it looks a lot better for you in civil court if you're the one that initiates those steps. So sorry you got caught up in it, Zach, but, you know, let's squash it. Bygones be bygones. So I signed the paper. Um, it was not an NDA. It was just a, because uh, I was like, this is not an NDA because I'm going to tell this story someday, John. <laughs> he was like, oh, it's fine, it's fine. Um, and so, yeah, I signed it. I said I wouldn't sue him and the whole thing. Now, listen, that time it, it worked out okay, right? The, the end was okay. But there have been plenty of times in my life where I have forgotten who I am and there have been severe consequences, right? Like that time it was okay. Now it's a funny story. I get to tell it to you all. But there have been a lot of times in my life where I've forgotten who I am and the consequences have been devastating. And I want to ask you, Have you ever experienced something like that? Maybe someone did something to you or said something to you and it bothered you so much that you just kind of for a second or a minute forgot who you were and you retaliated in a way that you really regretted later. Maybe it was like circumstances that were beyond your control that put you in a really hard situation and you wanted to get out of it so badly that you forgot who you were for a little bit and you did something really desperate 
And now you have to live with that. Or maybe it was a time when you faced temptation, right? And you thought no one was going to find out. And so you forgot who you were and you did something that you knew was wrong. Whatever it was, whatever that looked like for you, I think we've all experienced times where we've forgotten who we are and it's caused some pain and some brokenness, not just to ourselves, but to the people around us as well. And most of us have experienced the other side of it too, right? When someone else, maybe someone we're close to, someone we love, forgets who they are and there's pain and brokenness left on our plate. Well, Scripture teaches that each and every person is made in the image of God and carries divine goodness inside of them. And if we forget that, if we forget that about ourselves or we forget it about other people, the results are devastating. In fact, I believe a profound misunderstanding about who God is and who we are are actually at the heart of virtually all of the brokenness that exists in our world. And that's why a few months ago, we kicked off this year of healing and wholeness, of talking about how do we actually pursue healing and wholeness? How do we more um, fully understand who God is and who we are so that we can actually live from those identities? Now, if this is your first time, or if you've missed the last couple of months, back in August, this was the year of healing and wholeness that we kicked off. And we've said, right, the world is really hard right now. And most of us are kind of feeling some combination of of tired, overwhelmed, anxious, and distressed, and we aren't exactly sure what to do about it or how our faith is supposed to help through this time. And that's why we're spending this fall and spring diving deeply into how we can experience healing and wholeness, both as individuals and as a whole church family. And like I said, it all starts, I think, with understanding who God is and who God says we are. So last Sunday, we wrapped up a six-week series examining God's six self-identified core characteristics from Exodus 34. This is God talking, and God says, The Lord, the Lord, the God of compassion and grace, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. And so we spent six weeks looking at each of those bolded words as a, a core characteristic of who God says God is. But now that we've looked at that, today we are starting another six-week series examining who God says we are. Or to put it another way, we're examining our identity. Now I said this a few times throughout the last couple of months, but if I had to boil all of this stuff I've been talking about down to one sentence, it would go like this. God is love and we are God's beloved. God is love, and we are God's beloved. These two identities form the foundation of the Christian faith. Now, I use the word beloved on purpose, because in the New Testament, the originally, it was originally written in Greek, beloved is the word agapetos, agapetos. And the root of agapetos is agape which is one of the four words that Greek has for love. So we've talked about this a few weeks ago. English has a bunch of, or English has one word for love, but it can describe a bunch of different things. Everything from like, I love my spouse to I love pizza. And it can kind of cause some, some issues in between those two things, right? Because there's only really one word for it. Greek doesn't have that problem. So Greek actually has a bunch of different, four main ones, but a bunch of different words for love. 
And agape is actually the least commonly used one in the first century culture based on all the writings that we have from that time. But it's also the deepest and noblest kind of love. It is self-sacrificing. It is completely devoted to the object of love. This is the kind of love that keeps on loving, even when the object of love is unresponsive, unkind, or unworthy. So agapetos, or beloved, is used 61 times in the New Testament, 61 times. Six of those times, it's used by God to describe how he feels about Jesus. Here's an example. This is my beloved son with whom I am well Please. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So six of the 61 uses describe how God feels about Jesus. Do you know who the other 55 uses are about? Us. I just want to let that sink in for a second. 61 times it's used. Six times it's used about how God feels about Jesus. The other 55 it's used to describe you and me and all of humanity. Here are a few examples. Beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Another, because you became so beloved to us, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well. And then Ephesians 5, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dearly beloved agapetos children. And because of that, live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. Y'all, we are God's dearly beloved children. God is the perfect parent who loves us with an unconditional, self-sacrificing, never-ending kind of love. God is love, and we are God's beloved. God is love, and we are the primary object of that love. Those are core characteristics unshakable identities. And I actually think that learning how to receive God's love and live as God's beloved is foundational to being a Christian. To put it another way, if we can't do that, I think we will struggle to do everything else when it comes to trying to follow Jesus. So with the rest of our time together this morning, I want to trace our belovedness through the meta-narrative, the big story of Scripture, to show us just how central God's love for us really is to this story. It all starts with the foundational truth, as I said, that God is love. 1 John 4, 16, we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This same passage actually goes on to tell us that all true love comes from God. And that everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God because, again, God is love. So that's number one. Number two, this God who is love creates us in love. Like a pregnant mother, God gave birth to this world and to humanity in love. This is Genesis. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Everything our God creates in love is very good because our God is good. But many of you know, if you know the story, right, that tragedy soon strikes God's very good world. Humanity turns their back on the love of God to kind of go their own way, to pursue their own definitions of love, and sin and brokenness enter the world. 
That day, right, God could have very easily just washed his hands of the world he created. He could have just started over. Could have done something completely new. He could have said to us rebellious humanity, I don't need this in my life, right? He could have just turned his back. But God doesn't. Instead, number three, God pursues us in love. God is love. God creates us in love. And then God pursues us in love. From the Garden of Eden to us today, the story of humanity, our story is one marked by God choosing to love us even when we turn our backs on him. Choosing to be faithful to us even when we are faithless, scripture says. In the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament, God reassures the people of his loving pursuit in one of their lowest moments. Here's what God says. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with an unfailing kindness. And even though you are very low right now, I will build you up again. In the New Testament, this loving pursuit leads God to put on flesh and to come to earth as Jesus, John three sixteen, right? The most famous passage in all of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Love is the driving factor for the incarnation of God in Christ. It was because of love. Earlier in his account of Jesus's life, John tells us that Jesus is God in the flesh who has come to make his home among us. And since God is love, we know that. That makes Jesus love incarnate, love in the flesh. And God's loving pursuit of us was not in vain because number four is that God saves us in love. We just sang about that a bunch, right? Jesus is our living hope. The King of Kings calls us his own. Paul echoes God's loving pursuit of us and our salvation when he tells the early church why Jesus came, died, and rose again. Romans 5, or excuse me, Ephesians 2, God is so rich in mercy and he loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Again, love is the primary motivating factor for not just the incarnation, but for the cross and the resurrection. It was because of love. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now, as we receive God's love, we are meant to then share it with the whole world. Because number five is God calls us to love. When the people asked Jesus while he was on our earth what the most important thing was, he gave us something that we now call the greatest commandment. So here's how Jesus replied. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Love God and love others. We spent an entire year, actually, back in 2019, talking through the implications of this greatest commandment to love God and to love others because following Jesus is centered on this calling, right? It is the most important thing. Paul puts it very bluntly in his letter to the Galatian church. It's one of my very favorite verses in all of Scripture. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. When Jesus had to boil it all down, he said, love God and love your neighbor 
when Paul had to boil it all down, he said the only thing that counts is faith expressed through love. But there's one final thread in this kind of tapestry of God's love for us woven throughout the meta-narrative of Scripture and the history of humanity. God is love. God creates us in love. God pursues us in love. God saves us in love. God commands us to love. And then lastly, God's love for us never ends. God's love for us never ends. This is a quote actually taken directly from maybe the most famous words ever written about love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Love never ends. God's story culminates in the return of Jesus. Right? He, he comes back to earth to finish his work of restoration and redemption and making all things new. And when that day comes, it will usher in this forever world that is completely marked and defined by love. How do I know that? I'm going to tell you in just a second. Because love will always be there. Even when everything else changes, even when everything else falls away, love remains the same. Now listen, this is true, right, of God's core characteristics too. We just finished this whole series walking through how, in addition to being loving, God is compassionate, gracious, faithful, forgiving, and just. Now, those other characteristics, y'all, they will always be a part of God. But God will no longer have use for them one day. Not if that makes sense. For instance, God will always be just. But when Jesus returns and fixes all of the brokenness in the world, there will no longer be any injustice to combat. God will be able to lay that core characteristic to rest. God will always be forgiving, right? That'll always be a part of him. But when Jesus returns and wipes away sin and evil forever, there will be nothing left to forgive. That characteristic will be laid to rest. But love, y'all, love will always be there. Here's what that whole passage from 1 Corinthians 13 says. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. But love never ends. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. God is love. He created us in love, pursued us in love, saved us in love, calls us to love, and then someday Jesus will come again in love and make all things new and show us once and for all the world as it was always supposed to be, one marked by the fullness of God's love manifest in us and between us and in creation and in all things. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I have doubted my belovedness. Times when I didn't feel lovable. The same thing actually happened to one of my heroes, too, a man named Fred Rogers. Fred, or Mr. Rogers, as most folks know him, is most famous for his television show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which ran for over 30 years. But you may not know that in addition to being on television, Fred Rogers was actually a pastor and a graduate of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. And he got in to television industry because he was so frustrated by all the kind of anger and violence and stuff he saw depicted on TV programs. And he thought, this medium is amazing, but there has to be a better way to use it. In a 2001 interview with CNN, he said this, I got into television because I hated it, so 
And I thought there was some way of using this fabulous instrument to be of nurture to those who would watch and listen. This was Fred Rogers' mission, his goal, and he was determined to use the far-reaching abilities of TV to spread the message of God's unconditional love and our belovedness. And he did exactly that, right? If you have ever seen Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood or the incredible spinoff, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, big fan, big fan, you know what I'm talking about, right? This is what God does. This is who he is. And Mr. Rogers knew that. And Mr. Rogers spent 30 years on TV telling absolutely everyone that that was true of them. See, no matter your age, Fred Rogers had this amazing gift to make you feel listened to and loved. No matter where you lived in the world, he made you feel like you were his neighbor. In another interview, he shared this kind of why behind everything he did on TV. The whole idea is to look into the television camera and present as much love as you possibly could to a person who might feel like he or she needs it. We all long to be lovable and capable of loving. The greatest thing we can do is to help somebody know that they are loved and capable of loving. See, he was a preacher, for real. But even someone who spent their entire life telling others about how beloved they are, about how much God loves them, can have doubts. In the 2018 documentary about his life called Won't You Be My Neighbor, Fred Rogers' wife talked about one of her final conversations she had with her husband before he passed away. She recalls that Fred said to her, do you think I'm a sheep? Do you think I'm a sheep? This is a reference to Matthew 25 where Jesus says God is going to separate the sheep from the goats based on how well we have cared for the least of these in our world. So even after going to seminary, even after being a pastor and hosting a television show almost every day for 30 years, all about helping people know that they are loved by God and capable of receiving that love and giving it away to others, Mr. Rogers doubted his belovedness. And do you know why? Here's why I think it is. I think it's the same reason that all of us doubt our belovedness. Because there are just these times where we forget who we are. We forget what God has so clearly said about us. We've been deceived into believing that God's love for us is predicated on our performance or our usefulness or our ability to avoid sin. To put it succinctly, we have been tricked into believing that God's love for us is somehow transactional. But my friends, God's agape love for us is not transactional. It is unconditional. It isn't earned. It is freely given. And it isn't in danger of drying up or running out or leaving us behind. God's unconditional love for us never ends. Because it is not based on what we do. It is based on who God says we are unshakable identity. We are beloved by God. This is our foundational identity. It's who we are. 
Author Brennan Manning says it like this, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. God loves you. Not some idealized version of you that might come in the future and not just when you're behaving a certain way. God loves you fully as you are right now, as you sit here, as you watch, as you listen. Fully. God delights in you. Not in some way that is burdensome or obligatory. God loves loving you. You bring great joy to God's heart. Christians often talk about how we ask God to, to show us his beauty and his goodness, right? When we talk about that, we sing about that, and I think it's beautiful. But a lot of times, I think God's just trying to show us our own beauty and goodness, the way that he really loves us. We ask God to show us all the great things he wants us to do. But sometimes he's just trying to show us that we are fully loved and completely satisfied in him. There's no amount of stuff that we can accomplish that would make him love us more. There's no amount of sin we could fall into that could make him love us less. We are both fully known and fully loved by God. Each and every person is beloved by God. That is who we are. That is who you are. Don't you forget it. Because when we forget this core identity, that we are beloved by God and that every other human is too, things get broken and people get hurt. Now because of this great love that God has for us, because of this belovedness, he is wanting us to experience more and more of healing and wholeness and fullness of life. But listen, we will never get there if we do not have this as the foundation. Because then every pursuit of healing, every attempt at wholeness, every desire to move toward fullness of life will be in our minds. We will be thinking that somehow we will achieve some greater level of love from God if we step into it. That somehow we will be more delightful in his sight if we will just kind of get it together, if we will do the right things and make the right decisions. And my friends, if that is where you are, if that is the mindset that you have, I'm telling you, you will always struggle to step into the fullness of what God has for you. Because it starts with understanding that you are fully known and fully loved right here, right now. As I said at the beginning, profound misunderstandings about God and ourselves are at the heart of virtually all of the pain and brokenness in our world. So if we want to experience this healing, this wholeness, this fullness of life that God desires for us, we must find our identity first and foremost in our belovedness. God is love and we are God's beloved. We're about to pray and then the band's going to come back up and we're going to sing one more song called Our God is Love. But I want you to know that if you're here this morning and that kind of leaning into this understanding of God being love and us being the object of his love, us being beloved, it's hard. I get it. You're not alone. I also want to say it's probably not your fault. 
Somebody you loved probably told you that. Somebody you trusted maybe told you that. And so we're all working to kind of break free from some of those things. And if you would like somebody to pray with you, somebody to talk with you about it, our prayer team is going to be right over there. It's this big pop-up sign right there that says prayer. During this response time, if you want to just walk over and pray with someone, if you want to pray in your seat, if you want to stay seated, if you want to stand and belt out this song, whatever you are feeling right now, whatever is going to help you lean into this love that God has for you, that's what I want you to do. That is your assignment for today and for the rest of your life. Make a home in God's love for you. Let me pray. God, I'm so grateful for the clarity of your love, for the way that we can look and trace it all throughout the big story of Scripture, through the history of humanity, that you are love, that is your primary characteristic, that we are your beloved, that it is your primary motivating factor for the incarnation of Christ, for the death and resurrection of Christ, for his multi-year ministry of healing and wholeness and helping people experience fullness of life, that all of it was undergirded by love. God, we know, as you said, that someday... Prophecies will cease. Someday tongues will be stilled. Someday knowledge will pass away. Someday there will be no more sermons. There will be no more songs. There will be no more anything else except your love. God, we look forward to the day where the fullness of your love can be experienced by all of us but we also pray that right now, even in the brokenness of our lives and the brokenness of this world, that we will lean in to your love. That we will find our identity in it, that we will make a home in it, and that we would share your unconditional agape love with every single person that we encounter. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.